welcome to the History and Philosophy of Physics podcast. I'm Tegan Phillips. This is the first episode of Season 2, also known as Episode 9, The Original Atomic Age. Though it's been a while since the last episode, we haven't jumped forward a few thousand years. We're still hanging out in ancient Greece around the 5th century BCE right now and talking about the first atomic theory, which is credited to the pre-Socratic philosophers Leucippus and Democritus. As usual, I'll start by talking briefly about some of the biographical information on these guys, and then dive into the theory. So, Leucippus. He lived sometime during the 5th century BCE, but very little is known about him. In fact, some people doubt that he even existed. However, Greek tradition regards him as the founder of atomism. What's problematic is that his writings, if he was in fact a real person, and a real person who wrote things down, well, they are thought to have been combined with the writings of Democritus, and are basically indistinguishable. Some think that Leucippus came up with the idea of atomism, while Democritus did much of the elaboration and detailing of the theory, which is why it's Democritus who gets the most credit in commentaries on ancient atomism. Other scholars think that Leucippus came up with most of the core ideas of atomism, and that Democritus applied Leucippus's ideas to problems, like how things can physically move. Who knows who did what two and a half thousand years ago? There isn't a whole lot more to say specifically about Leucippus, except for some remarks on what is thought to have led him to create the theory of atomism, however detailed he may or may not have made it. Diogenes Laertius, biographer of the Greek philosophers from the 2nd and 3rd centuries CE, stated that Leucippus was a student of Zeno of Elea, the Parmenidean philosopher who liked to argue using paradoxes, and who was the focus of episode 8. It's possible that atomism came about as a response to the arguments of Zeno or to those of other Parmenideans. If you think back to episode 7 and the theories of Parmenides, you may recall that the ideas of oneness of being and the impossibility of motion arose because Parmenides believed the void was synonymous with non-existence, so there just couldn't be empty space, which was required for things like motion. You could divide matter infinitely many times or zoom in on the smallest scale possible, and it would still be. Zeno argued that supposing otherwise would only lead you into paradoxes, which are bad brain moments when reason says, wait, what? Supposedly, Leucippus thought that there must be a void since it's necessary for motion, which we do in fact experience. That's right, hold on to your hats, which you can do because motion is not an illusion. This void shouldn't be thought of as non-existence, but rather as a vacuum, a space that is empty and doesn't contain any matter. Not nothing, just not matter. While it may seem small, this distinction does matter. It allows for there to be empty space, the void, but also space which is filled. The matter which fills space consists of an infinite number of particles, or units, called atoms, which have the same characteristics of Parmenides' being, including indestructibility and eternal existence. I'll speak more about the nature of atoms in this theory after I introduce Democritus. The main point is that Leucippus's atomism aimed to reconcile Parmenides' theory of being with our sensory experience. 
After all, our senses and intuition tell us that change, motion, and a multiplicity of things exist. Atom theory also provides a response to the problems and paradoxes raised by Zeno. Now, Democritus. He was probably born around the year 460 BCE and lived a couple decades into the 4th century BCE. He was a citizen of Abdera, a major city or polis on the Thracian coast in northeastern Greece. Some writers report that Democritus traveled abroad to places like Egypt and Persia, or studied under the philosopher Anaxagoras in Athens, though these reports are all pretty doubtful. I haven't talked about Anaxagoras in the podcast yet, but I think that I will in a couple of episodes. Democritus is generally regarded as either a student or an associate of Leucippus. Since there isn't any reliable record of Leucippus's age or work beyond what got combined with the work of Democritus, it's hard to say. In addition to his work on atomism, Diogenes Laertius credits Democritus with works on ethics, music, mathematics, and cosmology. Democritus was known as the laughing philosopher, most likely because he emphasized the value of cheerfulness in his ethical writings, and probably in his personal life too, it's fair to say. Supposedly, Democritus said cheerfulness is the most desirable goal in life. But he could be serious, too, and do some serious work. According to ancient atomism, the natural world is made up of two fundamental and indivisible entities, atoms and the void. Let's start by talking about the void, or if you want to be dramatic, the great, never-ending emptiness which haunts the souls of many an angsty philosopher. The void. Well, we've seen earlier that this can be a problematic concept, physically or philosophically speaking. It was the denial of the possibility of the void, conceived as non-being, a literally empty existence, or perhaps the existence of literal emptiness, that led Parmenides and many of his students or followers, the Eleatics like Zeno, to conclude that everything is being and all one and the same, and that motion and the multiplicity of things and basically everything we see and think we know is nothing but an illusion. Leucippus and Democritus disagreed. In Metaphysics, Aristotle put it this way, Leucippus and his associate Democritus say that the elements are the full and the empty. They call the one being and the other not being. Being is full and solid, not being is empty and rare. And since the void exists no less than body, not being, they say, exists no less than being. And these are the material causes of existing things. Basically, the void is real. It exists no less than does body, or what we would today call physical matter. And it's the void and the being or body, aka atoms, that have together generated our world. This is also a very different approach than that taken by the Miletian philosophers I discussed in the first few episodes who, we think, argued that certain elements, such as water or air, were the origin or cause of our physical world. The atomists say that our sight and our senses do not deceive us. There is motion, and more than one kind of thing, and things can come into being and pass away, be created and destroyed, at the level which we see and interact with the world on. This is because, at a much smaller level, 
so small as to elude our senses, there are atoms moving in the void. This is obviously a pretty big break from Eleatic or Parmenidean thought, though some of the terminology is the same, at least in English translation. I unfortunately can't read ancient Greek, like the terms being and not being. Considering much of what we know about the theories of Parmenides, the Eleatics, and Leucippus and Democritus come from later writers, this isn't really a surprise. Though we do have legit fragments of Parmenides' work which use these terms, so at least we can say he started it. Still, it can be a bit cumbersome, like when Plutarch writes, no thing exists just as much as thing, by which he means that empty space, or the void, exists just as much as matter or atoms. Essentially, the atomist said it's a little silly to think that nothing moves and what we see and feel is all a big illusion. Empty space is real, and that's that. Well, I guess that's not quite all, because there's still a lot to say about atoms. We know a lot about atoms nowadays, and I know quite a few of you listeners are physicists and are very knowledgeable about modern atomic theory. And those of you who aren't, who maybe haven't thought about atoms in years, I don't know, you still probably all learned about atoms in science or chemistry classes at school, about how they are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, how they relate to the elements on the periodic table, how they can be drawn like a little circle with rings around it, like in the background of the podcast logo. Well, none of that is important for this episode, because ancient atoms were a little bit different. Like the so-called being of Parmenides, atoms were thought to be indestructible, indivisible, eternal, and infinite. In number, not size in this case. Simplicius wrote, Leucippus and Democritus said that the first principles, atoms, were infinite in number, and they supposed them to be uncuttable and indivisible and impassive because of their solidity, and without any share of the void. For division, they maintain, takes place because of the void which is in bodies. Larger things, things we can see, can be cut, like a loaf of bread. You can cut it in half, and then half again, and again, and again. Depending on how large your loaf of bread is and how finely sharpened your knife is, you can cut it many, many times. Some philosophers might even have thought that you could, theoretically, divide it infinitely many times like Zeno's stadium or racecourse. However, Leucippus and Democritus would say that you'd eventually reach a limit where the knife can no longer cut through the bread. It's not really bread at that point, because it's just atoms, and atoms have no empty space or void within them through which a knife could pass. The atoms are solid and uncuttable. Atoms also don't change, which is presumably what Simplicius meant by calling them impassive, or whatever the ancient Greek word is that translates into English as impassive. Not that the atoms were unfeeling or unemotional, though being inanimate objects, that might be a reasonable description, even if it's a bit nonsensical. Atoms don't change, again, because they're solid and don't contain any empty space. Empty space is needed for movement, and movement is needed for change. So, atoms are kind of like tiny little marbles, or maybe more like tiny little indestructible rocks, because they come in different shapes and sizes, some being jagged, some curved, some round, some being bigger, others being smaller. These differences are important because they are what allow for the creation of different compounds. 
atoms of different types can come together and their different arrangements and different positions will lead to the formation of different compound bodies. After all, the letter A differs from N in shape, AN from NA in arrangement, and a sideways H from an upright H in position. Atoms are building blocks. They can be tilted sideways, turned around, flipped over, and so on, to make buildings, flowers, mountains, and everything else we see in the world. Interestingly, Theophrastus, a Greek philosopher from the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE, about a hundred years after the time of Democritus, wrote that Democritus also attributed different tastes to the sizes and shapes of atoms. In assigning the shapes to each taste, Democritus made what is sweet to consist of atoms that are round and of a good size. What is sour consists of atoms that are bulky, jagged, and many-angled, without curves. Sharp-tasting things, as the name implies, consist of atoms that are themselves sharp, angular, crooked, fine, and without curves. Pungent things are made of atoms that are round, fine, angular, and crooked. Salty things, of atoms that are angular, of a good size, twisted, and with two sides equal. Bitter, of atoms that are curved and smooth, but very crooked and small in size. Oily-tasting things consist of atoms that are fine, round, and small. In this, we see a sort of analogous reasoning which can be found often throughout the history of science, where certain qualities are related to concepts or attributes by virtue of similarity. So, sharp-tasting things are made up of angular and sharply-shaped atoms, while oily-tasting things are made of small round atoms which resemble beads of oil. It was impossible for these early atomists to actually see atoms, so they proposed a variety of shapes based on properties that could be sensed directly at our human or direct level of experience. The same kind of reasoning was famously applied to medicine by the Greek physicians Hippocrates and Galen with the theory of humors. The theory of humors was pretty fundamental to the field of medicine in Europe from the time of ancient Greece and Rome through to about the 1850s, when germ theory came on the scene. It was also adopted in medieval Islamic medicine and Unani medicine, a school of Persio-Arabic traditional medicine which is still practiced in some parts of South and Central Asia. According to the most popular form of humor theory, there are four humors which regulate human behavior and health, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. In a healthy person, these humors can be found in certain amounts in certain parts of the body. An imbalance of one or more of these humors is the direct cause of all diseases. The qualities of whichever humor is out of whack influences the nature of the disease. For example, if you have a fever, that's probably a symptom of excess blood, blood being warm and moist like your feverish head. A good treatment, then, is to remove the excess blood which is causing your fever, perhaps by having a doctor cut your arm or attach a leech or five to bleed you. I personally get bled two or three times a year, but these days it's done with a sterilized needle and is known as donating blood. It's a good thing for quite different reasons than what Hippocrates, Galen, and the centuries of humor theory following physicians believed. Today, the theory of humor and the use of bleeding as a medical treatment have been disproven. It is a pseudoscientific practice, which can actually be quite harmful to patients. 
That's a bit of a digression, but the point I wanted to make with this humorous anecdote is that we see a similar kind of reasoning in early atomic theory with the relating of properties between objects that can be quantitatively observed or measured, and the properties of unobservables which cause or constitute them. So, the qualities of the atoms making up objects determine the properties of these objects, such as taste. Some properties depend not only on the sizes and shapes of the constituting atoms, but also on how they are arranged. This will obviously impact the size and shape of the larger compound object, but its weight is also impacted, because that is affected by how much void or empty space it has. Something with a lot of void or holes between its atoms, like a sponge, is much lighter than something which has less void and more closely packed atoms like a brick. While larger objects can change their form, the shape or form of an atom itself cannot change. If an atom is cube-shaped, it will be cube-shaped for all eternity. No amount of pushing on its edges by other atoms will ever soften it or round it out. Thus, different compounds can't be made by deforming or changing the shapes of the atoms which are present but they can be made by using atoms in different combinations and different arrangements or permutations. Going back to the senses, it seems like the early atomists believed that many of the properties of objects which we perceive with our senses, things like color and temperature, exist only by convention. They don't really exist, because it's only atoms and the void which exist at the base of things, and atoms in the void don't have these kind of qualities. This is supported by the fact that perceptions can differ from person to person. Aristotle wrote that even to the same person the same thing will not always appear the same. Which of these appearances is true and which is false is not obvious, for neither is more true than the other, but both are alike. Hence, Democritus, at least, says that nothing is true, or that the truth is not evident to us at any rate. Sextus Empiricus expresses a similar statement. From the fact that honey appears bitter to some and sweet to others, Democritus concluded that it was neither sweet nor bitter in itself. Our sensory perception leads us to believe things have colours and temperatures, like the mug of Earl Grey tea I made just before recording this episode, which is now at the perfect temperature for drinking. But... Is it really? Hmm, lovely. Indeed, it is evident that it is impossible to know what each thing really is, since we can't perceive atoms or the void. Maybe this is reminding you of Parmenides again, and his belief that pretty much everything we think we can see or experience, things like change and motion, are actually illusions. Parmenides was quite radical with his theory that nothing is as it seems. The atomists Leucippus and Democritus didn't go nearly so far, and actually used atom theory to support and explain some of our perceptions like change in motion. Still, they would have agreed that some truths about the nature of the world are unknowable, or perhaps knowable only through philosophical reasoning. Our perception only takes us so far. To find truths beyond the reach of our perception requires either physical tools and machines like we have today, and which the ancient Greeks had in more limited quantity and capacity, or it requires the use of reason, the favourite tool of philosophers. 
So, if we suppose there are these theoretical atoms, how do they theoretically move? According to Simplicius again, Leucippus and Democritus describe the atoms as tossed about, and this is not only the primary, but the only motion they assign to the elements. This probably means that atoms move about randomly, floating up and down and all around, rather like dust particles in a shaft of sunlight. The world and everything in it, matter-wise, came about through this random motion, as atoms combine in all sorts of ways, coming together and moving apart, until they come upon the one arrangement that is our world as we know it. In De Rerum Natura, the 1st century BCE Roman poet and philosopher Lucretius describes exactly this, saying, Myriad atoms swept along through infinite time or myriad paths by blows and their own weight have come together in every possible way and tried out every combination that they could possibly create. So it happens that after roaming the world for eons of time in making trial of every combination and movement, at length they come together, those atoms whose sudden coincidence often becomes the origin of mighty things, of earth and sea and sky and the species of living things. Like the monkey chained to a typewriter, who over an infinite amount of time would produce the complete works of Shakespeare by randomly pressing keys. Magical. This seems to be professing that the world arose by random chance, but Simplicius notes that though Democritus appears to make use of chance in the formation of the world order, when he comes to details he asserts that chance is the cause of nothing. Instead, everything happens for a reason and out of necessity. Some writers attribute the movement of atoms as involving a kind of vortex motion. For example, Diogenes Laertius wrote that many bodies of all sorts of shapes split off from the infinite into a great void, where, being gathered together, they give rise to a single vortex, in which, colliding and circling in all sorts of ways, they begin to separate apart, like to like, being unable to circle in equilibrium any longer because of their congestion, the light bodies go off into the outer void like chaff, while the rest remain together, and becoming entangled, unite their motions, and produce first a spherical structure. From this swirling vortex arose the earth, sun, and other heavenly bodies. I just want to highlight for a moment the word infinite. Diogenes Laertius said that these bodies, atoms, split off from the infinite into a great void. This seems to be a reference back to the concept of aparon, introduced by Anaximander back in the 6th century BCE, a little over a hundred years before the time of Leucippus and Democritus. Aparon was a boundless or infinite substance from which all other things arise. I don't know if Leucippus and Democritus knew of Anaximander's work and incorporated this concept into their theory. After all, the writings of Diogenes Laertius are a secondary source recorded centuries after the lives of the philosophers he wrote about, but it would be an interesting connection, building upon some of the earliest work done in ancient Greek philosophy and cosmology. The vortex motion seems to have been based on observations of the movement of fluids, when a fluid, like water, is moving in a vortex, parts of it are revolving at different rates. In the center, movement is slower, and this is where sediments form. 
The outer parts of the vortex revolve more quickly. Lucretius wrote that Democritus applied this to the movement of planets and stars around the Earth, saying, He suggested that the nearer the heavenly bodies are to the Earth, the less they are caught up in the vortex of the heavens, for the rushing strength of this fierce vortex fades and decreases at a lower level. This is why the moon seems to return more swiftly to each constellation. They, in fact, return to it. So there we have it. Everything is made of atoms floating and swirling about in a vortex in the infinite void. How picturesque. While we may be totally on board with the idea of atoms and subatomic particles being the building blocks of matter nowadays, the Greeks maybe didn't read about the ancient atomism of Leucippus and Democritus and think, by Zeus, they've got it. So why not? Well, part of it is probably because it was so hard to verify, for millennia, really. People just didn't have the observational and experimental tools to provide any form of support for the theory. Atomism was just one theory among many for a very long time. But today, we can look back at the OG atomists, whose core concept, at least, has come back and become one of the hallmark theories and symbols of science and of physics. Next episode, we'll step up and back to the elemental level and be talking about Empedocles. Until then, you can always check out the website for the podcast at historyandphilosophyofphysicspodcast.ca and follow the podcast on Facebook or Twitter. Just search at histphilphyspod. You can also send me an email at histphilphyspod at gmail.com if you have any comments, questions, or just feel like saying hi. If you like the podcast, I'd also really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review. Until next time, I hope you all take care and stay safe.